I have one wish for every person I have ever encountered in my ministry. There's only one thing that I desire for all of you, for each of you. It is to know, to know that God's love for you is real. You are right now. No matter where you've been or what you've done or where you might be going, you are right now the apple of God's eye. You carry within your soul the spark of the creation that happened at the beginning of all time. There is stardust within you. You are a part of the stars. You are a part of the sky. And that is a mark of God's singular love for you. You may not be perfect. You may be a sinner. If you're not a sinner, uh, would you introduce yourself to me at the end of the service, please? I've never met one, and that includes the person standing right here in the pulpit. Love can save us. Love can give us peace beyond all understanding. Love can save us individually. Love can uh, guide our church congregationally. Love can, I believe this with my heart, save the world. 2,000 years after Jesus came and preached words like this to the people of Israel, we're still desperately in need of that simple, clear proclamation. You are loved. That word could save us. If we could accept it, believe it, receive it. Went to a funeral a couple of years ago for a man who took his life. There is nothing more difficult for, for a family to face than that terrible tragedy. It's one of the most difficult things a pastor will ever have to, to do is lead a service for someone who's taken their life. The service was beautiful, though. Family and friends spoke of him. His children, longtime co-workers, gave beautiful, beautiful thoughts and comments about the life that he had lived. Uh, the pastor spoke, too. He's a friend of mine, and his eulogy was amazing. And the way he summarized this man's life and the, the gifts that he gave to the community and to his family. But then at the end, he said, I, I wish Don, and, and that's not the man's real name, but we'll call him that. He said, I wish Don had, had, had been able to wait. I wish he'd been able to see this day. To hear the stories of the people who loved him. To, to know that despite his failures and his, his misgivings about life itself, he was still loved. There were many who were more than willing to walk hand in hand with him, to be a part of him, to pick him up when he stumbles. I wish, the pastor said, he could have seen to live one more day, to experience the love that God has for all of us. Last week I read a fascinating book by a man named Jonathan Martin. Pastor Jonathan is a minister, a writer, teacher, a brilliant guy. But he wrote this book titled How to Survive a Shipwreck because he had gone through a shipwreck of his own making. He committed, and I don't, we never did hear what it was, a fairly serious mistake. It, it ended his marriage. It destroyed his ministry for a time being. But on the other side of it, he said, after the shipwreck, he used the shipwreck as a metaphor for, for this failure, for this mistake, whatever it was. He said, on the other side of the shipwreck, I finally discovered the loving God that I've been preaching. I finally found out that the grace I had been proclaiming to my church was true. Friends I thought would abandon me actually called me and welcomed me in. Church members that I thought would be ashamed and embarrassed to see me instead reached out and said, we love you, we love you. We love you. 
He said it was unbelievable to experience this whole new life. And I got to tell you, the book was worth the time to read it, and it was worth whatever I spent on it for this one line. And about the middle of the book, he says, no matter where you are in life, there are no dead ends. No matter where you are. And he thought he'd seen a dead end. What he thought was an ending turned out to be a new beginning. No matter where you are in life, there are no dead ends. My singular wish for all of us, for each of you, would be for us to discover this singular, amazing, overwhelming, gracious, forgiving love of God. For you, for me, for that person you can't stand. (laughs) Maybe most of you don't have that, somebody like that. But for those of you who do, it's for everyone. That's my singular wish. But part of the problem with this, though, is that sometimes, like Pastor Martin, we can't experience that love until we've gone through our own shipwreck, whether of our own doing or, or someone else, or just life itself falling apart. For many, if not most, the shipwreck occurs at midlife or after midlife. Now, now it's true. I, I was a youth minister for, for 13 years, and I saw a lot of kids go through some tough stuff, some serious shipwrecks. There are others, though, who get all the way to the end of life and never experience any tragedy or, or suffering until the very end. But wherever you are, wherever it happens, oftentimes it's not until after the shipwreck that you discover this amazing truth. In fact, in, in, my, in my experience and in the experience of, of many of, of, of the parishioners and, and people in the church that I've served, it, it's sometimes, like I say, it comes in that middle life when you've, when you've developed the resume, when you've achieved some success, when you've gained some things that you want, when you've discovered that, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good at some things, I've got some skills, but then you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and you say, but what else? The resume is clear, the, the name and the job title are good, family's fine, and house is nice, and the dog runs around, and, but is that it? And for many, that's the beginning of the shipwreck, the beginning of feeling like they're sinking, of they're, they're about to lose everything, they don't even know why. And it's in that moment, it's in that place, where for many of us, we finally discover the reality of God's love. Uh, Richard Rohr is one of my favorite writers. He's a Franciscan priest. He says, he reminds us that some form of suffering, I'm quoting him, some form of suffering or death, psychological, spiritual, relational, or physical, is the only way we will loosen our ties to our small and separate self. Did you hear that last line? Sometimes it's only the suffering, the shipwreck as it were, that will allow us to loosen our ties to that small and separate self. It's that small and separate voice that constantly nags at you, that tells you you're never quite good enough. You achieve some success, but then you encounter somebody else who's done a little better, and there's that voice, that small and insignificant one, chattering away. No, you're, you're never really quite going to be as good as you think you should be. It's in the letting go of that false self, that false voice, that we are set free to be embraced by the overwhelming love of God. Now, This is a beautiful thing to say, of course, but Richard Rohr himself will tell you it's not easy to do. Like I said, he's a Franciscan priest. He is the voice, as far as I'm concerned, in the English-speaking world for this message, for communicating this to to all that he encounters. It's in the letting go of that, that negativity that you find, the courage you need to be embraced by God's love. But because he preaches this universal love, he receives hateful mail and emails, which is kind of... I. I it's another sermon for another time, but it's just amazing to me that somebody who preaches love is told, you're a heretic who's going to burn in hell forever. 
And yet he'll, all, he'll tell you that it's those voices and his own that still wake him in the middle of the night. Maybe, maybe I am a heretic. Maybe, maybe I am a false teacher. Maybe I am a failure. Maybe all those things. And he says in a very open and, and powerful way that he too has to fight that small false self so that he can be embraced by the very love that he proclaims. So the Apostle Peter writes to the churches in what was the eastern, far eastern portion of the Roman Empire in that day because he wants them to know this singular truth. He wants to find them to find the courage to live in love. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances of the churches that he writes to, and this letter apparently was circulated around a number of churches, six, seven, or eight, or nine churches. We don't know the exact circumstances, but we know enough of what Peter knows that any time you gather a group of folks together in a community, whether it's a family or PTA or church, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreement. There's going to be sometimes anger and frustration. It's normal. It's a part of being a human being. It's what happens. And Peter writes to these churches, knowing that's going to happen, above all, maintain constant love for one another. It's a beautiful, simple, and clear word. Above all, maintain constant love for one another because, and here's where it really gets good, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, like I said, if you're not a sinner, you can go home, thanks. But for the rest of us, what a beautiful statement. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's open, honest, real. There will be a multitude of sins in the church. It's just a matter of fact. Now, there are folks on the outside who will look at us and say, you Christians, you follow Jesus, you claim to be loving, to love one another, to love God and all that, but look at the way you act. Well, we should hear that criticism. We should heed it and pay attention to it. Absolutely, yes. But the fact is, any time human beings gather together in a community, these things will arise. But the church is not, as someone has said many times, said it so often it's a cliche, the church is not a hotel for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. It's a place where broken, wounded, hurting people are invited to gather to hear the good news of God's love, to help each other up when we fall, to put our arms around each other, even when we're in conflict, even when we're not so sure we want to sit next to that person in church or anywhere else. It's a hospital for the less than perfect. We gather here not as perfect visions or examples for the world to follow, but as persons who've heard the good news of God's love for all. There's a pastor that I'm reading a lot these days. Her name is Nadia Bowles Weber. Maybe some of you have heard of her. She's a a Lutheran preacher in, in, in Denver, but she doesn't look like one. She's tall and angular, trim and fit, she has tattoos up and down her arms and shoulders and kind of all, all over her, her, her body. She has a nose ring and she has a, a kind of a, not quite spiky, but kind of a, a close-cropped haircut along the side with hair that sticks up straight up at the top. Just so you know, these are three things I am not going to be doing anytime soon. <laughs> but I'm actually kind of envious of her, though. You know, not only does she have hair to play with and, and make it stick, stick straight up, she, looks, she actually looks pretty cool. I think she's really cool. Well, one day, a couple years ago, Nadia, who I've been reading now for a few years, was driving by Country Club Christian Church. She was here for a conference. She drove by. She saw our sign. She turned down onto 61st, drove around the block, came over and parked, and got out and took a picture of our sign. And she tweeted it. She put on Twitter a, a picture of our sign with my name right below it, where it says Country Club Christian Church. And she said, can you believe it? A church called Country Club? What is that about? 
kind of critiquing us a little bit, you know, kind of putting us down. Well, I follow her on Twitter, and so I sent her a note and said, hey, I'm the pastor there. It's a great church. We proclaim God's love for everyone, and we welcome anyone and everyone, even you. (laughs) She wrote a sweet note back, and she said, I stand corrected. I'm glad to hear the message of your church. Now, I just love that. That makes me me like her even more. She didn't get into argument or a fight or worry about the name or anything. She just graciously said, oh, thank you for clarifying for me something I did not know. That's, that's that love. That's that love that covers a multitude of sins that helps us learn to discover that indeed, indeed we can be a place where everyone is welcome. By the way, I want to let you know, the name of the church she pastors in, in Denver is titled The House for All Sinners and Saints. That's a pretty good name for any church. The house for all sinners and saints. Peter would like that name, I'm sure, and that's why he writes to the church and to remember and to remind them that the love they discovered in the teaching and preaching of Jesus is the same love that covers everything. Did I say that clearly enough? Love covers everything. The church gets into serious trouble when it forgets this simple truth. When we focus inward, when we look only at ourselves and our members, when we worry only about the needs of the institution, almost anyone on the outside can tell. They may not be able to name it when they walk into a church, but something just feels off or wrong when people encounter a church that is only inward-focused, is only trying to fix its own issues, problems, concerns, take care of only its members. A church like that usually does not exude warmth and hospitality. I love the work that two of our newest members of our staff are doing, Barbara George and and Ann Herity, they are organizing and managing our many ministries in a way that I, I've not seen in the, in the almost 14 years that, that I've been here. But they're also working very hard to make sure that we provide a welcoming and inviting community. Barb's organizing a greeters workshop in the fall. Now you might think, how hard is greeting? What is that? Why is that a big deal? Well, actually, there are some serious things that need to be done for greeters need to look for and, and prepare for and, and the way they need to reach out, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, I'm going to pick on somebody. John Stewart sitting right here in the third row. John Stewart oftentimes is the greeter across the street over here uh, as people are coming into that door uh, for worship at the 11 o'clock hour. I've got to tell you, I love it when I walk out of this chapel after this service is over and John Stewart shakes my hand and he says, good morning, Glenn. And he says, I'm looking forward to hearing your sermon, or I like that sermon. Sometimes he doesn't say that, but I, that's okay. <clears throat> i got to tell you, when John shakes my hand and smiles and says, it's great to see you, my step's a little quicker, a little lighter, and I feel good, and I'm ready to go preach one more time at the 11 o'clock service, even if I'm tired and worn out. You see how simple that is and how strong and beautiful that is? Welcome each other as though you're welcoming Christ. Peter writes, be hospitable with one another, without complaining. Again, clear, simple words. Be hospitable without complaining. Now, the Bible's got some confusing stuff. The book of Revelation, wild, weird, wonderful, but who knows what the heck's going on in that, in that amazing book in the Bible. Sometimes there's things that are hard to understand. Not Peter. He's clear. Be hospitable without complaining. By the way, that word hospitable, the word for it in Greek literally means welcome the stranger. Welcome the stranger. I think Peter's using that because if you read through the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that one of the teachings that occurs over and over again, it's emphasized in Jesus, but it's really strong in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is this idea of welcoming the alien or the foreigner, the stranger. In fact, in Leviticus 19, it says, welcome the alien because you, Israelites, 
were at one time a foreigner and an alien in a foreign land, in the land of Egypt. And remember what that felt like? Remember how it felt to be there and to be uh, under someone else's power and rule, not look like everyone else, not act like everyone else? Because you know what that's like. Treat the stranger, and this is from Leviticus, as your brother, your sister, as a citizen. It's a beautiful word, a simple word given to the church. Now, we, we Christians, though, here we are 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, we still have a hard time with this idea of hospitality, of welcoming anyone and everyone. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the singularity of fear. We let fear hold us back. We see someone whose skin tone is different or behavior is slightly off from what we normally expect, and fear rushes in. Fear blocks us from our ability to, to love to help another, to receive and welcome someone. Here's a a word from Nadia Bowles-Weber, that wild and wonderful Lutheran pastor. She writes about fear. She says, the Bible doesn't say, be not stupid. I laughed when I read that. I would love it, she says, if be not stupid was a thing that God says over and over and over again. But no, what does God say over and over again, she says? Fear not. Be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Because most of what we fear comes from that small, insignificant self, that tiny voice. And most of what it's talking about is a lie. Most of what we fear is not real. That's why God tells us in one form or another, over and over and over again, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus comes along and he takes those teachings and he says, and I give you a new commandment. Love your enemies. Anyone can love their their neighbor, their friend, those who love them. Love your enemies, too. The Apostle Paul kind of softens a little bit. You know, Paul probably uh, preached and, and, and wrote 30 or 40 years after the time of Jesus. Paul says, love your enemies because you'll be like you're heaping hot coals on their head. Love your enemies because it'll make them crazy. It'll drive them nuts. You know, I kind of like that teaching. Okay, I'm going to love this guy even if it drives me crazy because it just might drive him even crazier. Not, not bad advice. Over and over again, the Bible, though, tells us. Fear not. Be not afraid. Leave fear behind. Find faith. Live love. Well, let me close with this. I I told some of you that I I keynoted uh, back in June at the Christian Youth Fellowship Conference for high school kids out at Tall Oaks, our our campground not far from here. There's about 102 uh, high school kids there, 20 or 25 adults or so. Had a great time. We opened on, on the, the first night of camp by, by talking about how it takes courage and faith just to show up. Well, one of the kids who was the opening night preacher said, said to, her, to her, uh, her peers, 80% of life is showing up. I asked her, where would you get that number? She said, I don't know. It just seems like it's right. I think it is. 80% of life is just showing up. It takes courage to walk into a group of strangers, to a bunch of kids that you don't know, to not know exactly what's going to go on. Even if you've been to camp before, it still takes courage to show up again. She was right. And then am I on the last day of the keynoting, I said to the kids, it took courage to show up, and it's going to take courage to go home. We've had a great week of camp, I said. We've experienced faith and forgiveness, joy and grace, uh, love and, and hope. It's been an amazing community that we've formed here. There were some things, there were some issues, some disagreements, some things, but the kids learned some skills, and so did the adults, on how to let love cover a multitude of sins. 
And by the end of the week, we had this amazing community. I said to them, it's like a little slice of heaven. This is what heaven's going to be like. But it's going to take courage to go home. So I'm going home. I, I know my wife's going to be glad to see me. I haven't seen her for a few days. We've got a date set for the night. We'll go out to dinner. Go see a movie. But some of you, I said, some of you are going to go home to a place that's not so welcoming. For some of you, I don't know how many of you, but some of you, home is more like hell. Or maybe it's school. Maybe school coming up in August. It's a place where you're teased and bullied. Maybe it's work. Maybe some of you have a job where you just know it's going to be awful. You're not quite sure. It reminded them of the story, though, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Does some of you remember that story from the book of Daniel? The way I learned it when I was a little kid was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace they go. These were three Jewish leaders who were part of, a, of, a, of, a, of Babylon who refused in Babylon to worship the king. The king said, if you don't worship me, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, we can't worship anyone but God. And so a couple of soldiers to pick these three men up and throw them into the fire. The fire, according to the story, was so hot that the soldiers who threw them in were killed. And yet moments later, the king is summoned because the three men that he's thrown into the fire are still alive and walking around. And when the king gets there, he looks in and says, there's a fourth. And it looks like the Son of God. It's in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament. It looks like the Son of God. Do you see what the storyteller is telling us? Don't get caught up in the literalness of the story. Do you hear what he's saying? When you find yourself in the most hellish situation, in the flames of hell itself, don't be afraid. Because even there, God will walk with you. If you fall into hell, the promise of the Bible, Psalm 139, is that you will fall into the hands of God. I said to the kids, I'm saying to you and to myself, it's the power of love that gives us a new life, that gives us hope. It's the love that allows us to shut that small insignificant voice up finally and leave it behind, to leave fear behind, to live the life that God invites us to live. My singular desire, whether you hear me preach another sermon or not, this, my singular desire as your pastor is for you to know the truth of God's love for you. Maintain constant love for one another.